0: This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed, because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being?
1: If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step.
0: Great advice every week.
1: Listen to LifeKit from NPR. My name is Lee Carpenter, and my novel is called Ilium.
0: Lee Carpenter is the author of three novels set in the worlds of espionage and national security. Her newest novel, Ilium, follows an unnamed narrator who marries into a life of secrecy and a high stakes mission. I recently spoke with Lee Carpenter about her book and her inspiration. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Lee Carpenter. So, could you give our listeners a description of the book? Sure.
1: Ilium is the story of a young British woman, British girl, really, when we meet her, who has spent most of her life dreaming of being something else, really wanting more adventure in her life, romance. She kind of consolidates the architecture of her dreams around this garden that she passes daily, and she doesn't have any money, she doesn't really love school, and she sort of is seeking an outlet, but she doesn't know how to find that. And then at a party, she meets a much older man with whom she immediately falls in love. And he pulls her not only into a marriage, but into an entirely new life, part of which will be serving as the sort of centerpiece of a big espionage mission. And the book, I hope, will attract readers who who love classic spy stories, but also readers who are drawn to sort of what I'll call interior monologues of young women. (laughs) I tried to write into the genre, but maybe do it a little bit differently. And the book also tries to raise some questions about how we think about our enemies and how we think about choices that we make when we feel that we're on the right side of something or the wrong side of something and this young woman the book was very much inspired by John le Carre's book the little drummer girl and in that book you have a young british heroine uh who goes into the middle east hired by mossad the israelis to infiltrate uh a sort of palestinian camp but she goes there to Find that she really empathizes with the people there, and she learns to see things in a totally new way. And I was so, my book is not about the Middle East, but I was so struck by how skillful Le Carre was in really making the reader think carefully about these very, very complex issues. So I didn't try and do something as um, as politically ambitious, but I did want to. When you get to the end of the book, I hope. You, with that last chapter, rethink everything you've thought up until that point about all the characters.
0: You know, I want to ask about this narrator, this unnamed narrator, and specifically your decision to leave her nameless while naming everyone else, even, you know, if it's not their real names. Because this unnaming, it adds a layer of distance between her and the reader, which seems somewhat spy like. It's almost as if we can get close to her, but not too close, because we do not know her name. What was your intention behind this decision?
1: Thank you for asking that question. At the beginning, there was no intention. And I'm not trying to be funny, but <clears throat> I'm really no good at names. So I had written well into the book without giving her a name, because I feel like once you name someone, the whole history of that name and whatever the reader brings to that name value weights that character. Like I'm a big sports fan. So I I would never name a character Tom because for me, Tom is that name is owned by Tom Brady or, you know, Kobe, that name is owned by Kobe Bryant or Serena, you know, that's owned by Serena Williams. So I have trouble with names and I didn't want to give her a name. I tried, I actually tried to find a name for her. And then I decided at a certain point that, you know, when you study espionage at all in my last book was very much rooted in a look at the cia in particular one thing that comes up often is a description of the perfect asset so when in the case of cia case officers are looking for someone to ask to spy for the government you're looking for someone with a level of vulnerability whether it's economic vulnerability or ideological vulnerability You're looking for someone that's going to need a reason to come and do something that's pretty high risk and often puts them at odds with their family, friends and neighbors. So when I thought about a description of a young woman who I was ultimately going to have be very strong, but needed at the beginning to be quite vulnerable, I thought in a way like the ultimate vulnerability would be she's totally nameless. She's enough of a blank slate. They think that they can co-opt her into being what they need her to be. They can teach her how to dress and how to act and how to think. But I thought that having her identity less would be helpful in the birth of her character. And over the course of the book, of course she develops a really strong set of, I hope if I did my job right, she develops a strong set of beliefs and allegiances which lead her to make pretty powerful
0: choices. Talk to me about the influence of Homer's The Iliad. Talk to me about the influence it had on your story.
1: Well, I would have to go back in that case to the first book I wrote, which was called Eleven Days. When I delivered Eleven Days to my publisher, it was not called Eleven Days. It was called From a Safe House. I was encouraged to choose another title. And my editor, Shelley Wanger, who's been my editor for 10 years and my guide in so many things in her inimitably gentle way, said, Lee, why don't you look at the Iliad? Because that book was really a war story. So 10 years ago, I sat down and read the Iliad, which I hadn't looked at since high school. And what I had forgotten, or maybe never knew, is that at the end of the Iliad, you have Priam, who is an old man, who's lost his son, Hector. His son Hector was killed by Achilles and killed by Achilles to avenge the death of Achilles' best friend, uh, some say lover, Patroclus. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So Prime goes into Achilles' camp and sits down with Achilles and the two men talk and they cry and they bond over their losses. Achilles agrees to stand down his army for a period of 11 days so that Hector can properly be buried. Well, here I am 10 years later, and I'm still thinking about Priam and Achilles. I referenced them in the very last page of this new book because I think that that scene says so much about empathy and the limits of empathy and raises a real question about our ability to sit down with someone who has caused us the greatest pain we'll, we'll ever have. Yeah, I think that that war story has, has hung over a lot of what I've written because a lot of what I've written is about conflict.
0: You know, on the same note, in, in your author's note, you you said you tried in this book to say something about war's essential subjectivity, how a hero to one side is an assassin to another. and And although it's vastly different, I immediately thought of Mark Twain's The War Prayer, and so through this weaving of, of the Iliad and, and you know, Prime's arrangement with Achilles to retrieve Hector's remains, and I mean, what, what do you want readers to know or understand about the subjectivity of war?
1: Well, I don't know if I'm authoritative enough to really answer that question in a way that matters, but I'll take a shot at it. And I haven't read Twain's War Prayer, so I'm going to add that to my list. I think and I've I've learned so much from my husband who, who served in the Marines and has written extensively about this too and has talked a lot about even if you look literally at names of wars and conflicts and how one side will give the war a different name than the other side sometimes. And I think the naming of wars is probably, someone else is probably working on that book now to try and understand how people see conflict. With 11 Days, my thought was I'm not a warrior, but I am a mother, and every warrior has a mother. And so in that way, there's an essential humanity. And I think we're living in a time that's so fraught politically, and it's so difficult to talk to one another. I'm not new in saying that. And I think, I hoped that the reader would, in looking at, I have a character in the book, in Ilium, who is an older, let's call him an older warrior, Edward, and So when the narrator meets him, she's able to meet him when he's essentially a civilian and she's able to get to know him in a way without seeing him as, you know, a criminal or an assassin or any of the other things that he may have been in his prior life. She's able to just connect with him as a person. So I was interested in this idea of sort of retired warriors and where do they go and where do they end up? And in the case of Ilium, If, say, we had, you know, it took the United States 10 years to find Osama bin Laden, what if it had taken 35 years? And what if by the time we found him, the people who had been on the front lines of that post 9-11 conflict in Afghanistan were grandparents? And how would that color that operation in a different way? so again it was looking at and very loosely inspired by the real world events that i detail in the author's note this idea we're we're all so enraptured by attending to what's happening now everything is now it's what was tweeted five minutes ago and what what's happening today and uh, i wanted to try and again i don't know if i succeeded but i wanted to try and say what if the end story of an operation or of a war happens 10 20 30 years out from the war's origin and is there any more room for forgiveness there and if there's not what does that mean all of that set to the side i hope you can also just pick up the book and read it as a story of a young woman who is trying to figure out who she is and hopefully by the end of the book she's really learned something about herself
0: you know, in the author's note, you describe an assassination that took place in 1985. And then the, the response 23 years later, that it was it was a car bombing that resulted in a in the death of a Hezbollah leader. So you wrote that revenge in a forever war can take its time. But does this forever war? Does it ever end?
1: Don't know. You know, that's a question that uh, I remember when Dexter Filkins wrote his heartbreakingly beautiful book which I highly recommend called The Forever War and it was around that time I think that people started using that phrase I think I think it was his his phrase to talk about these conflicts which seemed to be endless we seemed to be in a new paradigm of wars that didn't have neat starts or finishes but since that time you know I don't know anymore if you look at The world today and again i'm not a strategist i'm not a national security expert but i certainly think it sometimes feels like there are forever if we don't call them wars there are certain forever conflicts and i'm less interested in the geopolitical answers to those conflicts and more interested in this question of how then do we talk about them to young people. In the book, there's a very young boy who, as I was writing it, became increasingly central to the story because he is the child of a man who did very, very, very bad things. And yet he, you know, he's just a kid and he doesn't, see that about his father and he doesn't have any of the backstory that I try and give the reader hopefully in a not too tacky way sort of in the last three pages of the book the young boy just knows he's a young boy growing up in admittedly strange circumstances but to him that's just his life and I wanted to kind of look at the as so much great literature television and film has done look at sort of the people standing over here, you know, who maybe are not central to what's going on and not even knowledgeable about what's going on and how it's affecting their life.
0: He was a young boy who was very, 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 very old. So talk to me about the relationship between this nine-year-old as Felix and our unnamed narrator, because they do form a sweet relationship. Talk to me about the bond they share despite their vastly different upbringings.
1: Well, I have children and have observed how wise a nine-year-old can be. You know, I remember my mother telling me that eight is often the end of the wonder years. I don't know what the technical definition of the wonder years are, but eight is apparently the age at which children most often question whether Santa Claus is real, question whether the tooth fairy is real. It's sort of the the pre-pubescent chapter, right? It's pre-YA, it's pre-teen, but there's something really going on between sort of eight and 12, even in my experience in my home. And I wanted to tap into that sort of, it's a precocity that comes without knowledge. So it's really can be a confusing time for a kid. So Felix has grown up in an exceptionally privileged circumstance raised by parents who've been operating at very high levels of government and, and intelligence services and have uh, had a lot of financial gain as a result of that. And he's living on the Western coast of France. He doesn't know why, but the reason why is his father has been a hunted man for a long time and the family's gone there to kind of live in exile and hide. And the narrator arrives at this compound in Western France. I've never been there, by the way, but that's what novelists do. We just make things up. Uh, I do know this place, Cap Ferret, exists, and I wanted a place that was a bit um, barren and exotic but accessible. And she's sort of been a loner her whole life and has had difficulty connecting in with people. I kind of opened the book by describing how she eats lunch alone every day. And it's been tough for her to forge bonds. And I think she sees some of herself in Felix, even though, as you point out, quite rightly, they have totally different backgrounds. But she sees a child who's alone, despite the fact that his parents have filled tried to fill his days with lots of um, activity and even other children. There's something essentially alone about him. And I think that's what she's drawn to. And then he's in turn drawn to her as someone who has taken an interest in him for no reason other than she finds him interesting she's not been paid by his parents to mind him or to spend time with him and i think there's something there's a very powerful bond that can be forged between an adult and a child when it's not your own child i see this a lot with my nieces and nephews you know i'm a stepmother and and being a stepmother you can have enormous freedom to love without some of the complexity that can sometimes come with parenting. And so she becomes a kind of de facto in a very short period of time, almost like a big sister to him. And that bond is going to put the mission at risk a little bit, so to speak. And because we're all inundated with so much, as I said, great literature, great television that tells stories of missions placed at risk, I thought, you know, I had this scene in my mind from the beginning of her running towards this little boy trying to protect him Uh, and that scene ended up in the book.
0: Speaking of the mission, the name of this operation was Ilium, the title of the book, but it was also the name of the operation. And I found it interesting that it was not from the Trojan War but from the Bible. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, actually where it came from for me was a series of paintings that I saw by the painter Cy Twombly, and that painting cycle, I think you referred to it as, is called 50 Days at Iliam, I-L-I-A-M. The, the book was originally titled Iliam, but that seemed too weird. Um, so we came back to Iliam, which has very, um, which has much more well-known resonances, whether biblical. um close girlfriend of mine who's a doctor sent me a note telling me there's an anatomical Ilium which was fascinating to me which I didn't even know about and of course the the reference to, to the Trojan War uh, but for me it was this idea which is also in the novel as you know that a man who participates in a war later in life has some money and he uses it to commission a series of paintings that That depict a war and that he wants to live literally live inside the room of those paintings the vision of this structure housing these paintings and him wanting to wake up every morning and see them was was very early in the in the imagining of the book so that's where my ilium came from yes and then you learn that it's that it's the name of the operation
0: the epigraph of this book is a quote from john le then the new style began. Talk to me about this, because in the book you also wrote, a new style was forming to take its place, and yet the new style was, in some ways, the oldest style of all. It was analog. It was silk maps and handshakes. Talk to me about the influence of of this quote on this new style of espionage.
1: Well, John le Carre is, of course, the master, the great master, certainly of Cold War espionage, along with Graham Greene. And I read a lot of John Le Carré uh, during COVID, and then I had the great privilege of working a little bit with one of his sons, who taught me a lot more about espionage and spycraft and the architecture, the classic architecture of these kinds of stories. And there is a sort of saying that goes—I'm going to paraphrase it here—but that goes something like, you know, the the next world war will be fought with sticks and stones. Meaning after we have exhausted and come to the limits of technology, we'll be again as we were when we started. And yet even now, even 18 months out, two years out from my writing this book, I think there's been quite a lot of talk and questions raised around the limits of our sophisticated technological armies and, and weapons. And are we already going back to, in some cases, this sort of new style, which is the old style, exactly as I put it in the book, which is analog, which is all about the, the centerpiece of the new style as I interpreted it from Le Carre. I mean, he's very sly in how he puts that phrase, but is what people say in the intelligence world is human or human intelligence, which is literally what a person is telling you. And that's what everything hinges on in this mission. Everything hinges on her, the narrator, gathering human intelligence. And then we learn, of course, at the end, that there's a very specific reason why she was chosen. And it wasn't just for her ignorance or her vulnerability. It was for something else. But she, the idea is that if everything may come down not to a drone but to a level of trust and that's you know that's just like gold dust for a novelist right because that's what that's we don't know enough about drones but we we love concepts like trust and you know it's a it's a book about relationships and people but hopefully hung against the architecture of a of a spy thriller
0: Ilium is your third novel, and it's also your third book that takes place within the world of espionage and national security. What's next for you? Are you going to keep on the same line?
1: I think so. I think I'm stuck. Uh, Actually, I have a story collection that has absolutely nothing to do with this subject matter. I was asked... um, kind of at the height of the, the Me Too movement, I was asked by a literary magazine to write a story, a kind of a Me Too story that, that had happened in my life. And I couldn't, I'm not very good at writing about myself, so I couldn't figure out how to do that, but it really gnawed on me. You know, why don't I wanna contribute here? What What do I think? And then I thought, well, maybe I could write a story from a man's point of view a man who behaved badly and, you know, take it outside myself again, as I've done with, with the novels. Um, And that actually became a whole story collection, mainly told from, from male perspectives about relationships with women. So it's called Fox Hunt. I hope that makes its way into the world. And then, yes, after that, back to, back to John le Carre, I hope. I will say that um, I think that there is a, Common misperception, uh, not only that women don't write espionage, which is definitely not true, but also that women are less interested in espionage as a genre. And uh, I'll do everything I can to debunk that myth. I think it's, I think it comes from another generation, and I think there's a reason why we keep returning to spy stories across different forms of medium, because I think that, as John Le Carre said. To look at the spy world is really to mine all of the challenges and questions and metaphors and conflicts that come up in any very ordinary life just under heightened circumstances. And that, you know, that has always stuck with me.
0: That was Lee Carpenter, author of the novel Ilium, which was published by Knopf. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.